Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a comedian and a musician who recently joined forces to make a music video, Joe Para and Dan Riggins. Joe Para is a stand-up comedian who's best known as the star and creator of Joe Para Talks With You, the Adult Swim TV show about the beautifully modest existence of a middle school choir instructor in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. It's a show unlike anything else on TV, past or present, and it's a direct reflection of Para's unassuming comedic persona. In other words, it's hard to tell where Joe Para the character ends and Joe Para the guy begins. It's also insightful, weird, and decidedly sweet. And while the show just finished its three-season run recently, it won't be the last the world sees of Para. In fact, he's in the midst of a stand-up tour right now, and you can find dates at joepara.com. Oh, and he also just landed the role of James Bond, which you can hear all about on his recent Seth Meyers appearance. Seems like kind of a big deal. Yet Para still has time to help out indie bands like Friendship, whose singer and songwriter Dan Riggins is the other participant in today's chat. Friendship is made up of old friends, no surprise there, though the band is actually named after a town in Maine near where they grew up. They're currently based in Philadelphia, though Riggins zoomed in for this chat from Little Cranberry Island, Maine, where he also spent time as a kid. That island is also where Friendship and Joe Para shot the video for Hank from the band's brand new album, Love the Stranger. It's their fourth full length and first for the always reliable Merge Records. And it's a beautiful album full of straightforward but nuanced observations about life and love. Check out a little bit of Hank right here or hit pause and go watch the video, which comes up in this chat quite a bit. Sweaty hands Reduced precision Waiting on the fan With a slow rotation In addition to talking about the Hank video, which leads to Joe and Dan talking about craftsmanship, lobster fishing, and lots more. They talk about touring as a comedy act versus touring as a band, and about how each of them works hard to make their respective art look easy. Oh, and at the end of the chat, Joe Para finally reveals who his celebrity spouse is. So stay tuned for that. Hello, this is uh, Joe Para here. Uh, I'm here with Dan Regans. And we're going to have a perfect conversation. Stay tuned this entire time because one of us has killed a man and we're going to admit it at the end of the podcast. <laughs> I'm Dan Riggins and um, I play with the band Friendship. And my first question for you, Joe, is if you have a take on our President Biden getting COVID. <laughs> uh, even in the weeks leading up to it, I've been, you know, whenever I'm having a conversation with a friend, I end it by you know, asking them to support Biden. He really needs it right now. And uh, I guess this week he needs it more than ever. So we're just hoping he's doing all right and he'll pull through. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I don't know what our country would do without Joe Biden. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, prayers for a speedy recovery. <laughs> well, we don't have to do politics today, but it right, is definitely right. something on everybody's mind at the moment. Walking around. <laughs> yeah. It's tea. Yeah. Anyhow, so you're you're in Isle or in uh, Little Cranberry Island. Yeah. You spend a lot of time there. I've been able to be up here uh, for a month now, which is the longest I've been able to get up here for several years. I um, grew up coming here a lot and lived here year round for a few years. 
a little island off the coast of Maine. And uh, yeah, for listeners, this is the sort of the co- main connection between me and Joe, um, because Joe came up here and uh, made a music video for Hank, one of uh, Friendship's new songs. That's right. So yeah, I'm coming to you live from this little cabin that in March Joe came up to, and we spent a while in. And um, at that time, there was no running water, and it was cold, and there was nobody here. But we had a great time, or I had a great time. I had a great time. We were drinking uh, coffee, brandy, and using an outhouse, and then going out each day and shooting a little bit of the music video. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah, Little Cranberry Island. I thought I laughed when I first heard it because it sounds like a fake island off of Maine, but it's real. And also there's Big Cranberry Island, I learned, and they alternate which, uh, which island the school will be on each year, right? Yeah, there's a building on each. So I think it's every two years, but it is wild. It's really a tiny community, and I feel immensely lucky to have grown up coming out here and to um, still be able to come out here. Then I heard Island off of Maine. I just been I've never been up to Maine until we shot the music video. But it sounded uh, like a I don't know. You imagine a fancy vacation place, but it's really it's uh, a lot of lobster fishermen live there year round, right? And everywhere you go, there's giant stacks of lobster crates just waiting to go for the next season. And um, yeah, a lot of people have been there for generations, right? Yeah, there are definitely families that it's like, oh, yeah, that family's been here forever. Their family has been lobster fishermen for forever. Yeah, and you worked as one for a while too, right? I did, yeah, but a few seasons as the crew, stern man. It's just you and the captain all day long. And, um, <laughs> and it's pretty wild, man. It's really hard work, but it's good money, and it is pretty cool. And I'm glad I don't have to get up that early now but you tell me about the captain that you went out with was kind of a younger guy and he's pretty reasonable with the hours where um your other friend was saying it was uh he didn't have the same experience just a lot of like which captain you get paired with right everyone here just works so hard and it it makes sense kind of because the more lobsters you pull out of the ocean, the more money you're going to make. So a lot of these guys, it's a combination of just, I think, like Protestant work culture and that the money thing and then just uh, masculine competition (laughs) results in like these fishermen who uh, everyone's just busting their ass, like destroying their bodies every day, long days, and they make a ton of money. And some guys are a little more chill about it. And both the captains I worked with were like a little more chill. That's neat that you got to do that for a little while. It seems like a tough living. You happy you don't have to do it still? (laughs) I mean, yeah, at the end of it, I was getting like, I guess carpal tunnel, but like my hands would go numb. And a lot of people have this thing. And I remember going to some doctors who were just like, yeah, you're, you should stop fishing. (laughs) That's scary as a guitar player. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and I'll still get it if I do a a lot of one, like I did a lot of landscaping years since. And Mm -hmm. if I'm trimming hedges all day long and you're just moving your arms really fast all day. I get the same thing where that day you're fine, but the next morning your arms and your hands are like numb. Yeah. If I've had done the, a lot of uh, using the weed whacker, those vibrations will really uh, shake up your hands good to make them sore. What's the weirdest job you had before? 
When I first moved to New York, I worked at the, they had this like, uh, it wasn't a museum, but like a discovery branded exhibit where they had some mummies. And uh, my job was to start the 3D movie. So I say, everybody, uh, please, uh, no food or drink or uh, cell phones. And now presenting uh, like uh, Land of the Pharaohs in 3D. And uh, <laughs> it was that. I did a yeah. bunch of, I, I worked for Bricklayer for a summer that was pretty serious stuff. Or yeah, it was a good experience. I washed cars at a Buick dealership in high school for a couple summers. You'd start on one end of the lot and uh, over the course of a couple of days, you work your way to the other end of the lot, washing them all. And then by the time that you'd finish, the cars on the other end would be dirty again. So you just kind of start over. And uh, yeah, one summer I, I broke my foot, so I had to wear one of those walking casts. And I thought, oh, perfect, I'd maybe get out of this. But my dad bought me a rubber boot. And I just put the (laughs) rubber boot over the walking cat. (laughs) So all the soap and gravel and water would go into the rubber boot. And by the end of the day, I have a soggy foot, which is probably not nearly as tough as uh, lobster fishing. You definitely get soggy lobster fishing. And it's not just soggy. It's like like bait juice soggy. Bait juice soggy? The dead fish that you use for bait. So as the stern man, as the crew, my, you know, half my job is just stuffing dead fish into these bags. So you smell like dead fish uh, and you go home and shower and that helps a little bit, but it doesn't uh, fix it. (laughs) But also what you said about the cars getting dirty again reminded me of one of my favorite jokes from your thing the other night where you said that James Bond um, is getting upset that... (laughs) people are littering faster than you can clean it up i mean that seems like a pretty (laughs) depressing uh (laughs) metaphor for a whole lot of stuff yeah you're talking about my the bit i did on seth Meyers or james bond got so upset i showed a clip from my upcoming james bond film he was picking up trash but then he got so upset he slammed the bag against the wall and congratulations by the way on that role yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. I'm on uh, steroids right now, trying to get uh, a little bit <laughs> beefed up. I know you had you have <laughs> you're looking at at uh, Pete Buttigieg for a uh, a role <laughs> as the bartender, <laughs> but do you have a villain lined up? Remember, he got kind of got into it with Amy Klobuchar a little bit during the debates. That would be fun to because they have like a, they'd have. A, Opposing chemistry, I bet you could feel on screen still. That would also ensure everybody from Minnesota would watch the new James Bond, which has historically been a hard region to get to watch James Bond. Minnesota people just aren't interested. They're a uh, they're a born identity. That's tough. Born identity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the solid. That's the, the born wall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tough nut to crack. <laughs> Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. 
You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. How about the, the, the music video? We went and filmed some of the, the, the people on the island, one of which was uh, named Henry. And we were just brainstorming ideas for the music video. And uh, you started telling me about him, and then you sent me a photograph, and I, it was, like, perfect. It just kind of clicked. Would you like to talk about Henry a little bit? Because he's fascinating. I wish we could <laughs> do a full documentary about him. Yeah, man. I, I wish we could, too. For listeners of the podcast, we're referencing the Hank music video that Joe made for our... Uh, <laughs> our song um but load that up uh if you if you please and watch it because it rules and the song rips uh, and also there's this guy henry in it and he's a carpenter who lives out here who's um one i always think of him as like a kind of an example or like among a set of uh people who i always think of as like my parents friends um who are generally like real lefty not but in it they're like they're like the the ideal of what a political independent means usually when someone says they're an independent they mean they're libertarian but in maine there really are people who like are just totally want to be off the grid and are like not psychos that's not really a good entry into henry really he's just a carpenter but you know he really lives by his own set of um, he's not going to do anything he doesn't want to do. What was that that one anecdote you told me about him not working or like him being finished working when he's oh, like being done? It might be someone else, but someone who went to work for a contractor and said to the contractor, I'll only, you know, I'm happy to do the job, but I'll only work in the mornings. And the contractor saying, oh, uh, really? Why? And then this carpenter saying, um, well, I, I wouldn't want to make work a habit. <laughs> <laughs> 
the thing that's crazy that we wanted to document for that video is his work on this compound of very wild buildings in the middle of the woods on the island, um, which are owned by another cool guy out here. Sam, the, the guy who builds, who owns the place, he just makes these models of wild buildings. One of them's like a weird pagoda temple. One of them's a nautilus-shaped spiral building. <laughs> the one he was building when we were there is like a, a it's like got two spires. It's I guess it's like a porch deck building. It's also like the four corners of it are actual trees. He didn't, they're just four trees that were in a rectangle. Yeah. And then Henry, so Henry, this, this carpenter, he just goes out into the woods and fells trees on the island or trees that are already fallen down. And he takes the bark off with a hand tool with one of those, uh, a, I can't remember what those things are called, scraper yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. Scraper guy stuff, yep. And then without any heavy machinery, he builds these um, incredible structures and he's uses a, all these systems of ropes and pulleys and tackle and like it's, it's yeah, I mean, I, I always describe it as it's like the Easter Island heads where he's He's doing it himself with a bunch of ropes and um, hand tools. He's making this incredible compound of buildings that are beautiful, and he's doing it all himself. And yeah, and he doesn't have like architectural blueprints either, right? He just goes off of the small sculptures that are presented to him by the jeweler. It's crazy. We're climbing on it to get some of the shots, and it's all. It, it's all held together by rope. The main beams of the building are held up not because they're driven into the ground, but because they're tied to other trees. And yeah. there's no scaffolding. He basically ties ladders with ropes to the structures that go maybe, what, three stories high on the one that we were shooting. And so he's climbing up these ladders that are tied just by rope and they're swaying around. It feels like uh, kind of like being on a ship, right? Or like shipbuilding, <laughs> the way that he's climbing up to a crow's nest, you know, yeah. it feels like. You know, he asked him if, if you've ever fallen, and uh, he said just just once recently, right? And he shook himself. He lay there for a minute, then <laughs> nothing was broken. Got up and kept working. Yeah, he goes real slow, I think, which is how he keeps it quote unquote safe. But yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, he drives his boat out to the island off the, uh, every morning does the work he gets as much done as he can and then goes home right that doesn't seem to be in any hurry to get in it done yeah it's inspiring i it made me think too i, I was reading i can't remember if it was with you or someone else we we're reading about like but some like uh cathedral in spain that's just one guy has been building the thing for his oh. for um yeah, the Sagrada Familia has been... Yeah. I think, the, yeah, it was designed with uh, nearly uh, nearly 100 years of construction. I think it's been planned, but it's, yeah, it's, it's still not finished. Yeah, there's something special about learning about those things and seeing them and how kind of mind-boggling they are. Yeah, the vision. And also, I think, yeah, what's interesting, Caitlin, the other artist that we filmed, she's a painter on the island who also does uh, pottery, too. We filmed, got to film her daily routine of dropping her son off on the ferry to go to school, and then she goes and paints all day on the beach, even when it's cold. And then, uh, then she picks up her son from the boat and goes home. But yeah, I think 
uh, yeah, and kind of working in the the solitude of the off season months on the island is is interesting. Just you know, one painting at a time, and yeah, keeping up that artistic routine. My mom's been a potter for her whole life. She has a shop out here on the island and sells everything all summer. And I just am kind of constantly like. I walk into the shop and see new stuff that she's doing and it's not way different from what she did before, but it is, she's still doing new different things. Like she still experiments, makes little changes. And to, for me to witness that and see it as like this body of work that is a lifetime's worth. It's like, it's so cool. I mean, it's, and, and to try and map that onto my own stuff with songwriting it really gives me a lot of perspective. It makes me think of like where kind of like craftsmanship bleeds into artistry and like having to do those repetitions and having to continually make it and, and change it slowly and getting better. But also stuff like Henry's buildings serve a purpose, the pottery serves a, a function. And I don't know, I go between, you know, whether stand-up comedy is just like, uh, you know, are you craftsmen just trying to, because jokes can become formulas if you let them. And it is about sitting down and tinkering on jokes and constantly writing and turning them out. And eventually sometimes you get something that is uh, something more, but it is, you know, like you're writing or making the music. It is a lot of just... Uh, I don't want to use the word grind, but it's on the tip of my tongue because uh, I think grind is shit. grind is a good word for it. <laughs> but it's just the constant repetition of it, and you know you have to sit down and write every day, and that's it's not like yeah you just go on stage and say something uh, great. You have to kind of mine for it all the time and shape and reshape stuff and it's a lot of it is not that uh, exciting or interesting but it's the sitting down every day to do it or work on it or you know and getting inspired inside of that yeah man i'm super um guarded about any work in progress you know rough mixes all this stuff demos or songs that i haven't finished i don't want you to see that do you know why? Because it sucks. It, it is bad. <laughs> like the whole point is that I write tons of stuff that is really, really bad. And then I hammer on it forever. And then it becomes, okay, you have to make all the bad stuff if you want to then get to the good stuff. If you approach it as, you know, like a, a craftsman as opposed to trying to imagine an artist, it's a lot uh, easier. It's just tinkering, rewriting spending a lot of time doing research. I would probably be embarrassed to admit like the amount of uh, effort that goes into like one of our 11 minute scripts and getting just every line just right and trying to make it. It's just a, a lot of tinkering and sitting down and it's not very exciting most of the time. But just trying to get those little details just right. So yeah, and I could tell from your lyrics too, they're, I don't know. They're kind of direct and straightforward in a way. I hope that's not offensive, but I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. Very concise. It would be interesting to see the length of your, like a song of yours on a page, because it doesn't feel very long. It, you seem to have to make every word count. And when you're singing slowly, or you're telling a joke slowly, and you don't get the right word, uh, it's very apparent when it's dumb or not fully formed 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't want things to be too overwrought too. You know, I don't, I don't want it to be too perfect in a way, but, but whatever that's, um, you're right. Like I, I definitely for me, it feels like trying to be direct, trying to um, cut the fluff is like really important. I'm trying to think of the last song on the album. Uh, uh, shoot. I can't remember. I love the smooth pursuit. Smooth pursuit. I just love the, the opening line. Because there's that, you know, it builds up musically at the beginning, and then you say, only a nose hair away, and then there's a long pause. <laughs> and then you say, well, then I tell you. Peace. <laughs> and then there's another long pause today. And it's like, if any, <laughs> it, almost, it almost gives uh, the listener space to try and, you know, you almost are anticipating what you're going to say next. That's totally a thing that I think about a lot. Writing songs is, you probably know quite a lot about this because it, it does feel akin to comedic timing is like timing of words and how a sentence could be finished. Mm-hmm. And like I'm working on a song now where I'm kind of messing with having a, a line that goes, you got so burr. <laughs> so, you know, while the O is coming, it, it sounds like I'm going to say you got so this or that. But it's actually a different word. <laughs> and um, did I tell you, though, where that um, nose hair line came from? Uh-uh. That's a direct or almost direct uh, lift from season one, episode three of King of the Hill. Hank's got the <laughs> willy. It's something that Dale Gribble says in the very beginning, um, like Hank's working on his car. And it's making a lot of noise. So Dale Gribble runs out and says, Hank, what are you doing? I was a I was a nose hair away from achieving inner peace. Well, you're hearing it first on Talk House podcast. <laughs> uh, most uh, friendship lyrics are just <laughs> from King Literally of- <laughs> written by, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. It's interesting. I was uh, in the UP, and there's a, a friend of mine who's a Finnish descent, uh, him and his dad uh, really feel a connection with Hank Hill. And I wonder if these, uh, I don't know, kind of like quiet, cold weather dudes all over just feel a connection with <laughs> Hank Hill. <laughs> yeah, I think relatability is quite a, is one of the big draws of that show. I wonder, does Henry like King of the Hill? I don't know. I haven't asked him. My dad likes it, I think. And um, Henry, my, I mean, the reason I'm so close to Henry is because he and my dad were real tight best friends. Yeah. So he's very. It was fun for the music video because like he was, uh, it's lovely. He allowed us to film him, but like he wouldn't stop at all. Like he's a weird. Like we'll film you getting off the boat uh, in the morning when he arrived on the island, and he didn't like stop or anything. He just walked, kept walking right to his car, got off the boat, and it was like, you just had to keep up with him. And when he was ready to leave at the end of the day, he barely told us. He just kind of like walked to his car, got in his car, and we had to just kind of keep up. And that was fun that I think he he liked being in the music video, but at the same time, like, he couldn't care that much. He couldn't let us know that. I wanted to ask you about touring because you've just started your... um getting back into touring or d- doing touring a lot more now. Yeah. And um, and I've been doing it for a long time, but, well, I don't I guess I haven't been doing it the way that a lot of my friends do it, where they are really doing it all the time because they're making all their money on it. Yeah. Or they're, they're trying to make a living doing it. With Friendship, we did, like, years of more of DIY touring where we still were taking time off of jobs. We had, like, five years of that before 
COVID. And um, yeah, I don't know. Curious what you've been noticing about life on the road and if it matches up to any of our experiences. I think the the big thing, comedy touring isn't quite the same as what uh, you guys have to deal with. I've done plenty of house shows in the past. Chris Gethard used to take us on. He would just, add, there was a period where he would ask if anybody wanted to host a show in his house. And, you know, I slept out floors before for shows, but with comedy, you just kind of show up. Uh, you don't have to carry any gear. Lately, he's been able to get Airbnbs and hotels. So I feel like a very luxurious experience uh, compared to, you know, driving around the tour van, sleeping in the parking lot. I feel a little bit spoiled compared to you guys. As much as it's work and not a vacation, it also is travel of some type. And I feel like every time I go out, I remember, oh, it's invigorating to travel and meet new people. When you're not really tired, it feels like complete freedom. Like, this is a dream. You're able to show up in a new place and people came out to see you. I'm wearing my, my shirt from Union Transfer in Philadelphia. Yeah. We did that this weekend, and, uh, you know, you do... I've done the TV show, and I've never been able... After season one, we did a small tour, which was cool, but that was, like, 100, 150-person rooms. And then we hadn't been able to do any touring because of COVID, and we went right back into production. But the show kind of found more audience during the pandemic. And uh, it's wild when, you know, with the TV show, you're like... They want a million people to watch it. If, even if you get a half million people to watch it, that's a that's that's pretty good. But you don't consider how many like half million people are until like you know you see five hundred people in a room at Union Transfer, and it's like wow, that's a lot of people to hear that five hundred people appreciate the show so much and want to hear your stand up is very cool. It feels real when you have people in a room who are excited to see you and want to talk after the show. And that's, uh, it's, it's, the internet is nice, uh, but it's just, it's, it's, it's neat to talk to people in person who, who like your work. I love being in the studio. I love writing music. I love playing it to myself, but nothing really beats playing it on stage if, if at a good show. It does feel like you put in the work by the time you got on tour. So then it's just, yeah, kind of celebrating the joke or the song or having as much fun with it as possible. It doesn't feel like the work part of it, really. There's kind of a generally accepted uh, musician's piece of advice, which is that, like, you should start a band. Go and start a band. To me, it's a little different. My advice is everyone should start a band and go on some really grueling, terrible <laughs> um, DIY tours that you book yourself. And you have some good shows, but you're also, yeah, sleeping in... On floors and and playing some terrible shows that no one cares about and um, you know awful bars and 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 basements and do a few years of that and then ideally quit. <laughs> <laughs> you, that's probably what you should do. I missed that part and forgot to. <laughs> if you're touring and having some shows that are bummers, it's like it's like a really healthy thing for your soul and your ego because you are being reminded that nobody cares. You have to find a source of strength to keep going that isn't uh, other people's approval. Um, I don't know. I've been reflecting recently on like how as much as like touring seems like it tears people's brains apart. I know a lot of folks who are seem well adjusted because of it. 
if you're touring with a band, they've learned how to like uh, be how to work as a team, how to like exist with other people in close proximity and like not fight all the time because everyone's got their own little neuroticisms and their things they need. And like to be forced to decide when you really need that thing and when it's important to like put it aside for the good of the of the band, of the team. That's probably the other big difference between stand-up touring and touring with a band. It's usually two, three people max. I guess it was called the Blueberry Tour with Joe Firestone, Connor O'Malley, and Dan Licata. And that was four of us. And that was fun. But yeah, it's just, yes, it feels like, yeah, just taking other people into account and not poking them when, you know, and... Sometimes it's fun to tease your friends, but you got to put that on hold while you're on tour. Oh, man. Friendship is a band that I've known Mike since um, fifth grade and Peter since high school. And, and often we've had the same job. We've been living in the same house. I mean, as anyone might assume, it's like to be in a band with your best friends is both really um, incredibly special and like really hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I know that you've had, you've done your show and other stuff with people that you've known a long time, like um, your Dan. Yeah, Dan, Dan Licata. <laughs> yeah, we went to high school together too. Yeah, just dads and, you know, people who I know very well, like Connor uh, O'Malley and Joe Firestone. And it's just, it's an added complexity. When it's great, it's good. And when you're meshing, like, you know, cause you just know, more layers to everybody and yeah know what they're usually thinking or feeling or at least you think you have some grasp on it but to take uh, it just makes everything more uh, complex but then they're yeah but it's also great because you can get to places and do shows like one of our favorite things is uh, when at the end of the show, at least on that tour, we all come back on stage and just uh, <laughs> basically the four of us on that tour would make fun of each other for whatever happened the day before. And it was like, it almost helped get enough of the, you know, if we were aggravated at somebody else or there, we could tease each other on stage at the end of the night. And it felt like all those feelings kind of dissipated. Right, right. It actually worked out pretty nice. And the audience seemed to enjoy it. I think audiences like when you, when people tease each other a little bit. Maybe friendship ought to, you know, if, if we ever get an encore, people are clapping, we should come out and, and we don't play another song. We just rip each other apart. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys wouldn't believe what uh, Michael did in the tour van today. There are just moments when you're feeling like, yeah, how lucky am I to be? doing a show with my best buds in uh, a new place or, you know, we're all wandering around this town at, uh, you know, midnight having fun. Uh, yeah, Connor likes to go to the grocery stores after tour because he's not a big bar guy. So we, you know, end up just roaming a grocery store, the four of us at the end of the night. That was always pretty memorable. Yeah, and also, it's, I don't know if when you guys tour, you get to go to everybody's hometown or to meet their older friends or family members from around. So you get to kind of like see new perspectives on them. Like we stayed at Joe Firestone's house when we played in St. Louis. I slept yeah. in our older brother's bed <laughs> <laughs> and with his football trophies around and stuff. And it was like, oh, I think I know 
uh, right. you know, Joe a little bit better because of this. I always wonder about bands where the, there's a couple in the band or something in there. Like Lowe has a song I really love where they the, they just keep saying, what part of me don't you know, hmm. over and over again. And I think both of them are singing it. And, yeah. and it's more powerful because you know that, okay, they're they're married and they're they are the band and um, uh, <laughs> damn dude that's a, that's a lot that's heavy but I think it works yeah everyone's different it seems to work out for them pretty good if you could bring your spouse on tour that's that'd be a great thing you know what would be the weirdest though is if you were like in a band with a married couple but you weren't in the married couple yeah, you're not in the couple, on tour yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you feel all the tension but you can't say anything yeah that's just kidding married couples every every as far as i know once you're married everything is good yeah (laughs) (laughs) it solves all your issues i was thinking before coming on here that i mean i suppose joe i don't want to uh you know reveal your relationship status because i don't want to break any hearts or drop it the you know sacrifice any ticket sales but um it's okay (laughs) you can tell them that i'm dating charlie's theron (laughs) yeah um <laughs> and uh so i guess and i've just noticed how beautiful that relationship is and so i was curious if you had any um words of wisdom for i mean for me and charlie's it actually works out well we kind of schedule our uh like uh, i still plan my tour around when she's doing a a, a big budget movie and it's, i don't know say in France for three four months that's when I go on tour and then when she comes back home from I'm trying to think uh, what she's working on now uh, she's a the, the, the Prometheus too <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah she's gonna come back and then I'll finish tour and we'll go have the holidays together and also yeah she pays for everything so it's really nice right right so fine I don't so, know <laughs> Yeah, find someone who pays for everything. Yeah, basically, you, you tweet at uh, A-list actors on, yeah, uh, and then you get in a relationship with them, and then it's all good. Right, let's, right. Let's see if I say if. Perfect. I <laughs> can't go wrong. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Joe Para and Dan Riggins for chatting. If you liked what you heard, they're both on tour separately right now. Please follow Talk House on your favorite podcasting platform, and check out all the great written features we've got on TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the Talkhouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.